1: I'm Nil Zacharias and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. If you have ever seen a school lunch menu or have ever eaten in a dining hall, you'll probably remember a few staple meals. Chicken nuggets, pizza, and some form of burger. While we all want to provide the best food possible for our kids, the reality is that schools and other institutions are focused on the bottom line. And that often leads to loading menus up with cheap processed meat and dairy. These meals might be appealing to kids in the short term, but they ultimately set them up for a life filled with diet-related disease. In fact, research shows 50% of what Americans eat consists of ultra-processed foods and only 1 in 10 people consume the recommended daily servings of fruits and vegetables. Luckily, in a world where fast food marketing dominates our daily lives, there are many people fighting to reclaim our health and get more nutritious, plant-based options in cafeterias everywhere. Audrey Lawson-Sanchez, Executive Director of Balanced, is one of those people. As a former educator and a mother herself, Audrey has seen the power of cheap meat and dairy in schools firsthand, and this inspired her to launch Balanced, a nutrition and public health advocacy organization campaigning for healthier menus in schools, work sites, hospitals, and other critical institutions in communities across the country. In this conversation, Audrey talks about the concept of food environments and explains how this plays a major role in our ability to choose better options. She explains how she worked with Dr. Michael Greger to develop recommendations for institutions and how they can change their overall approach to meal planning in order to foster better decision-making. Audrey also shares success stories and future plans that she has to spread the balance message further. While it may seem like eating plant based is easier than ever before, when it comes to access to better foods in schools, hospitals, and corporate cafeterias, there is still a long way to go. If you're interested in learning how balance can help transform the dining establishments in your life, listen in. Audrey Lawson-Sanchez, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Audrey, so I am super excited to talk to you today. Uh, We met briefly right before our um, panel um, at a recent uh, summit that we were, I was moderating a panel on, in fact, at the Reduce Summit, which was one of the previous episodes of this podcast. And within my first uh, two minutes of chatting with you, um, what stood out for me was your en- energy and the different passion that you brought to this uh, subject. And I knew that the panel was going to be exciting and fun, and we got a lot of Positive feedback from it, and we've kept in touch since then. And uh, I've uh, wanted to get you on the podcast to have a focused conversation because I'm endlessly fascinated by the work that you're doing and how you've been able to uh, launch a nonprofit like Balanced um, in the in just a year ago, I believe. Um, and what are the problems you're tackling? So I'm I'm gonna get into all of that. But firstly, I just wanted to say that. Um, I'm really excited to have you on. I think um, this is something we've typically not talked about, um, which is not just the the problem that you're tackling with uh, institutions and changing the food system by tackling institutional change, but more importantly, coming at it from the perspective of a brand new nonprofit that didn't even exist um, until last year. Um, so of course, you know, you know, you don't. You're not one of these thirty year old nonprofits that's been, that has you know millions and millions of dollars to to run fifty different campaigns. And so, as much as I'm interested in what you're doing, uh, I'm I'm really intrigued by how you're going about and doing it because I can't imagine it's an easy task. And I think uh, our listeners would love to learn more about how you're approaching all of this. So, with that being said. Um, Let's kind of start at the beginning. I'd love to know um, how you got interested uh, with a, in the problems with the food system to begin with.
0: Sure. Yeah. So it was uh, a confluence of two things happening at the same time: one in my professional life and one in my personal. So after a decade of uh, working in education in post Katrina New Orleans, I took about 10 months off because I I had a newborn and I wanted to spend some time with her. And as I thought about returning to the workforce, uh, I took a big pause and I said, what are the things that I care about and what can I apply my skills to best? And at that time, um, obviously I was plant-based, I was um, eating vegan, my family was vegan And my entry point into this work was actually working as the Vice President of Education at Mercy for Animals. So I got to marry my education background, my leadership background, my work in nonprofits, and uh, advocating on behalf of a more compassionate food system. But in that work, I was uh, primarily focused on helping people transition their diets over time. So we did a lot of uh, pro-veg work. You know, leafleting, vegetarian guides. We started the vegetarian support specialist where folks could text in or email in and get a response about, you know, how do I swap beef for beans? Like what seasonings do I use? Those sort of things. Um, and so all the while I was doing that, I was raising this, this, I was a young mother and I kept thinking to myself, I am investing a ton of time into helping individuals change their diet one at a time, giving this advice. And while I think that's like incredibly noble and totally necessary work, I realized that unless we started to change the system, and for me, it's changing the system on behalf of my child and all of the children that I've ever worked with, families and communities. Unless we change the system, it's just going to be this endless chipping away at individuals. And we are out, like, we are outpowered. Uh, The food companies, food industry has so much more money, so much more influence to. Uh, chip away at those individuals than nonprofits ever could. So I thought, well, if I if I am really going to invest all this time and energy, I might as well take down the system mm-hmm. instead of one at a time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's that's you know a fascinating, uh, I don't know, problem, right? At the end of the day what comes first? Where does change get started from? Uh, Do you focus on the individual and get them to change their eating habits? But then every time you try to do that, you figure out that individuals don't exist in isolation from our food system. And a lot of the time, our food choices are determined by the food that we have access to, um, not just in grocery stores, but often in places uh, like schools and hospitals and uh, other institutions where people spend a bulk of their time in. And so you may try yeah. as much as you want to change individual habits. They, uh, At the end of the day, if they don't have the right choices, they aren't going to necessarily change the way they eat. And then I guess the problem with institutions is that Changing an institution, you then encounter that institutions also don't exist in isolation. Institutions are all tied up with our food industry. And if you dig deeper, you'll see the food industry is tied up with our uh, policy framework, which is all, at the end of the day, designed to offer cheap, fast, unhealthy food to everyone. So maybe, you know, what would be helpful is, um, and I, I, I guess I don't have the right answer. I guess we need to do all of it, but why did you decide that, you know, institutions matter? Like maybe, for example, I don't know, just let's get some some stats or uh, numbers in terms of uh, why, for example, um, the school food system really matters.
0: Sure. So the school school food system matters if you're just looking for numbers because um, the Federal Nutrition Services uh, Guidelines impact about 97% of schools in America. And there are a hundred thousand schools that are sort of under the umbrella of the USDA and the FNS. And in those hundred thousand schools, there are about 30 million meals served a day. And so they really matter. (laughs) They matter for the market. They matter for the individuals, for those students. And like you said, you know, we can work to help individuals make choices, but I would argue in schools, it's a false choice, mm. so you can't put chicken nuggets and pepperoni pizza in front of a five year old and say like "Pick the healthier one." <laughs> it's neither healthy it's not a choice, and if institutions matter to the food industry, then institutions need to matter to advocates
1: right, yeah, I mean at the end of the day you're that you're right, there's a false choice there. you don't really have an option. Um. So I guess you you chose you decided. Well, if you're going to really make change, you might as well tackle the the institution. I'm assuming that's how you came up with the idea of launching Balance. So so tell us about the the early days of getting this uh, nonprofit off the ground. Um, Like, how do you go from uh, working at uh, Mercy for Animals doing the work that you were doing there? And deciding to take this leap and do this on your own, uh, what, how did you get started? What, what were those earlier days like?
0: Sure. Well, um, I think I'm one of the very rare social entrepreneurs who had a, a, a really strong network of connections. And so I was able to work with Dr. Gregor of Nutrition Facts, mm-hmm. um, who is the leading lifestyle medicine, evidence-based nutrition uh practitioner, doctor, expert in the country. Um, And I was able to partner with him to tap into his network of folks who already care about this. Um, But everything beyond that is just getting very scrappy. Uh, Thinking that you, you know, this is my best strategic guess. I'm going to work really hard at X, Y, and Z. And the moment I get data that says it doesn't work, I'm going to change. Hmm. And the moment I get data that says this works, I'm going to keep going. So as a I, I consider myself a professional educator. I did it for 10 years. It's sort of like what's in my blood. Data matters. So every decision we make at Balance is based on the data. We look at numbers. We also like don't tie our ego up in any strategy. Really, it's just about what works. And so we've adjusted over the course of the last year. We've changed our strategy, and it's a lot more effective now.
1: Wow. So, like, so after you left Mercy for Animals, you, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think what you mentioned there, the the power of relationships is is crucial when you're launching anything. You know, as much as uh, what I was saying earlier about our food choices aren't disconnected from uh, our food system, and everything is connected to everything else. At the end of the day, individuals launching businesses or nonprofits or any initiative. We are on islands, and the only way anyone succeeds is if you work with others. Um, I've learned that over the years doing the work that I'm doing, and um, you, can't, you can try to be effective alone, but if you build relationships and alliances and partnerships, you're going to have a much, much bigger impact. So the fact that you got Dr. Gregor on board um, and you were able to tap into that amazing resource uh, in itself is a, is a great way to kick off uh, whatever initiative you're going to be on. So when you launched Balance, what was the aim? Like, what was your kind of mission statement, and has it stayed the same? I know you said you've adjusted some of your strategies, but but what's the? How would you describe Balanced and the work that you're doing now?
0: Sure. So our core mission has always been the same, and that mission is to change menus and save lives. Um, we initially started by campaigning directly against food service companies, so the major food service companies. Uh, Aramark, Elior, Sodexo, those sort of folks. And what we realized over time was while we were able to disrupt a little bit as advocates, we actually were not um, as effective as we could be because we weren't reaching the people that those food companies impacted the most. So we were able to mobilize and organize a small group of people who cared about food policy But what we really want to do is we want to mobilize people who don't yet know they care about food policy. Mm -hmm. They know they care about their children's health. They know they care about their health. They know they care about long-term wellness of their family. And they don't know that that's wrapped up in food policy. And so what we do is we try and make it accessible for anybody, anywhere to advocate for healthier menus where they live. And so as we've shifted our work, we realize that there is an unmet need to empower people uh, to get involved in this work, even if we don't call it food policy, if we just say like healthier menus for your kindergartner.
1: Interesting. So I guess, so to make, so make sure I understood that in the beginning you were targeting the food service providers directly, um, and then instead you've started to empower people to do that on your behalf. Is that the shift?
0: On their behalf. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. before we were running our own campaigns, um, nationwide campaigns, trying to mobilize folks. And now what we do is we have an advocacy team that helps individuals across the country launch campaigns where they live. So uh, if there was a food policy commitment from a food service company in Delaware that didn't impact a parent in New Mexico, now we have the tools to help the parent in New Mexico who still wants what Delaware got. Uh, get that done in their
1: community Mm. all right so i see what you're doing now so i guess you're you are a lifelong educator and so what you're doing is you're educating people and empowering parents and and others within communities to take the tools and the information that you provide to them and empower them to then bring about change in their local communities is that safe to say yeah
0: and we Yeah, that's part of it. When We coach them every step of the way. So we provide a guide, a toolkit, literally free one-on-one coaching anytime they need it. Um, And so they get to go do that in their communities. And then the rest of my time, and I have another part of the organization. We're a very small team, so another part of the organization is kind of a stretch. That still works to campaign directly with or to encourage and work with and campaign against, if necessary, uh, specific institutions and food service companies. So while we're building this grassroots coalition of people, we're also applying top-down pressure saying, this is not not acceptable. We are going to hold the line and look at all these people who support us.
1: Yeah. So what have you seen in the last one year in terms of uh, success? I mean, have you any great examples you can share about uh, changes that have happened in certain institutions because of the work you're doing or just um, parents who didn't know any of this before now waking up to the fact that uh, their kids are basically eating junk and food uh, in, in their schools. Um, yeah, any stories you can share would be amazing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's, it's all of the above. Um, one of the the most powerful stories I think I can share is of this mother who lives in Washington, D.C. And she had been trying to engage in institutional outreach, uh, working even at the government level, trying to get policies changed at the city council level. Uh, Had been doing this for years, not making any progress, had tried to form coalitions with other groups doing this work. Um, and as soon as we launched our advocacy guide, we were able to get all of the right people at the table, create a campaign plan, and now they're moving forward and hoping to get some uh, a resolution passed at city council, and they've already started working with the, the food and nutrition services director of the entire Washington School District. So that feels pretty hopeful. That's pretty inspiring. Um, we've had you know 2,500 people download our uh, advocacy guide, you know, a couple hundred people sign up for our webinars and one-on-one coaching. So we are just like moving people through the process um, as as they're able to take on more and more work.
1: Yeah. And how do you sort of reach people who would potentially be able to take some of the toolkits and the work that you've done, learn from it, and then um, go and implement it locally? um what what kind of uh, outreach like i just just the reason i ask that is because in theory all of this makes sense but i can't imagine it's that simple to to actually execute and most people at the end of the day have amazing ideas and fail to do much with them because when they attempt to execute on them they're faced a bunch of obstacles and really don't know where to turn so When you started this a year ago, uh, what kind of approach plan did you have and how are you even now reaching people who you know can further this message um, at the local level?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So as a parent myself, I tried to consider the major barriers. If I were going to do this in my child's school or if I am taking my mother to the hospital every week and I want to campaign for healthier foods in that hospital or on that menu – Like, what would be my main barriers? And so, uh, a lifelong educator, I think about three things what knowledge would I need? What skills would I need? And what beliefs or mindsets would I need to change? And then, what are all of the outside barriers that would keep me from doing this work? And I'm inside again after talking to people, two things came up. One was time. So, the number one resource parents are desperate to have more of is time, Mm -hmm. right? We don't have any time to do anything. That's why the food industry has capitalized on parents and children for marketing. It's because if they can make it convenient and they can make it taste relatively okay, then it's going to get sold. Um, And so, and the other thing was uh, just knowledge and skills. So instead of expecting people to come to us, we put a huge emphasis on essentially making this program turnkey. So how can they take these tools and immediately implement it? And if it has to be adjusted and it has to have some sophistication or nuance to it, our team takes that on. So we make sure that we're building this tool for people to use where they live. Um, because if they're willing to put in their time, which is so limited, we know that that is of extreme value that if they're willing to commit that, then we can make it easy for them. And, uh, and then the second thing, is we go to people. So and there's a world in which you could pay for a ton of Facebook ads to mm-hmm. say, like, do you want to change menus for kids and get a bunch of clicks and then maybe a few people sign up? We just type in, like, San Diego vegan vegetarian parents. And then we go to the Facebook group and we say, hey, we have this tool. We know you care about this. Can we help you do it? Mm-hmm. And so we find the people who already care about this, and then we help them invest others in their community to care about the same cause.
1: Yeah, that's that's so smart. That's a scrappy way to do it. Because and and I really appreciate that. Because, you know, yeah, it's always uh, at the end of the day, uh, everyone's trying to reach a mass of people. And these days, there's every possible social media platform trying to make it easy for you, provided you're willing to spend a lot of money. But I I don't know, I find that you've just got to you can just some creativity and uh, hard work. You can find people who care about issues and then um, it's really not that difficult. It just requires some creative thinking. So I really appreciate yeah. that little insight because um, I find it's things like that that no one ever hears about that actually help bring about mass change uh, without necessarily having to just pour money at every problem. Some problems definitely totally. need money. I mean, money is important, yeah. but uh, yeah, you know, so there are ways to go around it if, if you're willing to put in the time and effort
0: yeah we always say uh, constantly we say this on balance like, what's the worst they could do? Say no, and then what? like, and then we plan out like if they say no and then what? okay, we go someplace else or we try something new. um but the very worst most people can say is no, okay, <laughs> thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Have a good life. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, especially when you're clear what you're you're doing and your mission and you you're armed with the right amount of uh, knowledge and information. If people don't want it, they don't want it. And you go, you know, you'll try to climb and bark up another tree. So it's uh, yeah. it's quite simple. And that, that rule applies whether you're doing advocacy work. It applies if you're uh, selling a product or running a business. It is really, it comes down to, um, you've got to really put yourself out there. And that's why I, I don't know, I have a lot of respect and appreciation um, uh, for people who, just have the ability to take whatever that they really believe in and turn that into um, something meaningful whether it's an end product or whether it's a campaign that brings about change or it's just content or whatever it is that they put out there um, and it's it's you know it takes it, it takes just a relentless effort to succeed and it's it's not easy and at the end of the day uh, change happens every day. Uh, and the work that you put in for the 24 hours that you have in a day really leads to, hopefully, institutional change in the end. Um, Absolutely. And you talked about you know yeah. parents and the role that parents play over here. Um, when it comes down to the facts about, um, let's talk about the food itself. I mean, um, you mentioned earlier, sure. uh, you know, in schools, most of the food fed to kids are is junk, really. Um where's okay. your focus there? Is it just reduction of um of meat, dairy and eggs or are you also trying to tackle the problem of sugar and processed foods in general because you know yeah, meat, dairy and eggs and uh, especially processed meats uh, we all know the science is clear on all of that completely unnecessary, yeah. terrible for everyone no matter what age um, but it doesn't end there, right? I mean, some of the foods that you know maybe plant-based aren't necessarily that good for kids or adults as well. So, how do you sure. message all of this, and and what kind of feedback have you gotten from parents? I'm assuming who are also pretty well informed, because as a parent, you know you're feeding your kids and you care about them, and and you probably do some research yourself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the way we think about this is focusing on re- reduction of known disease-causing foods. And we know foods that have cholesterol, saturated fat, excess sodium, excess sugar, are processed or ultra processed, are associated or the vast majority of them with um, the leading causes of death and disability and disease in our country and poor dietary patterns. And so we focus primarily on a reduction of meat, eggs, and dairy. The bonus of that is uh, when you reduce those on institutional menus, you often reduce in sodium, sugar, calories, because the food that is being served, it's not like kids are getting filet mignon, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're getting ultra processed foods. Um, even schools that do like meatless Monday, it's often cheese pizza, right? And so we focus on the fact that uh, diet related disease starts in childhood. You don't wake up at 40 with heart disease. This is something that accumulates over time and it starts when you're very young and it, uh, increases, uh, more quickly for some based on how healthy of habits they develop or change over time. But, um, by reducing known disease causing foods on menus, you're setting children up for a healthier life. And I mean, the, the public health stats are mind boggling in their size. So it's hard for people to understand the, the urgency and sort of crisis we're in with public health, but it's easy to look at a menu and say, Hey, what's up with the corn dogs every day? That doesn't seem (laughs) healthy. I wouldn't eat that myself. I would feel terrible if I ate that. Why would I feed that to children? Uh, That's a lot easier for people to understand.
1: Yeah. The corn dogs are interesting one, whole grain corn uh, dogs uh, with with, the processed meat inside. So uh, none of it is good, but, um, (laughs) so, um, you know, I, while hearing you talk about that, I I keep thinking at the end of the day, if you do see, you know, if you get parents to really care about this stuff and um, understand the basic science and nutrition over here, which which I don't think anyone can really argue against, um, what you eventually and you probably have faced this is you're going to face a, an issue with institutions where one of the reasons, and we kind of touched on this earlier, is that one of the reasons that unhealthy food is served in a lot of places is first and foremost, because that is cheaper and, um, that is cheaper to obtain. And, you know, if you dig, you know, if you follow that thread and figure out why you'll know it's because of a history of subsidies in this country that have typically gone to meat, dairy and eggs. So from an institutional standpoint, a lot of this is a cost um, decision at the end of the day, unfortunately, and less about health. Um, there are other factors which we'll get into, but let's stick with the cost thing. How do you, sure. how do you convince them to, unfortunately, have to spend more money? In, in I'm assuming in most cases to switch from the the corn dog and the pepperoni pizzas uh, to just you know whole fruits and vegetables.
0: Sure. Um, so we point to places where it has been done, and those institutions have saved money. Um, I. Actually, don't believe this is the institution's fault mm-hmm. um, for the vast majority of cases. To me, uh, the institutions that contract with major food service companies, those food service companies know what they're doing and they are increasing their profit margins by selling cheaper food instead of losing two cents on a needle so that kids can have a bean burrito instead of a cheese and commodity beef one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think of this as we apply a ton of pressure to those food companies while we're working with the institution, but at the same time, there, there are tons of proof points that you can do this and save money, especially if like institutions start shifting away from microwaving everything and getting back to just like cooking even small parts of the meal themselves. Um, and you know that's again not the institution's fault they have over time just been pushed in a certain direction because of the uh financial incentives and uh bottom lines of other companies
1: yeah i mean that's that's your it's interesting that some have there's actually evidence now that you can save money by making a few switches here and there uh and still you know provide healthy food but not necessarily have it impact their bottom line in a big way because at the end of the day these are all businesses and, and, and I, you know that's the thing I always have to try to keep in mind is that we've got to balance wow I've used that term in a smart way now <laughs> we've, right, got to, yeah. <laughs> we've got to we've got to balance the you know the the needs the health uh, the, the health needs of kids and, and other people at, with the realities of uh, the fact that these foods are provided by Institutions that source it from companies that are all businesses at the end of the day. And as we've all learned in this country and around the world, uh, in governments that are capitalistic and societies that are capitalistic, businesses exist to make profits. And uh, you make yep. profits by cutting costs and, um, and and selling more and reducing your cost of production. So at the end of the day, unfortunately, when it comes to food, the price we've paid of uh, for doing that and treating Food and our food system, just as any other business, as if it was, uh, you know, steel manufacturing or coal. Uh, this, at the end of the day, goes into our. Um, we eat this three or more times a day, and kids eat this when they're in school every day. And so, the trickle-down effect of these, um, you know, for lack of a better word, very short, uh, short-term, boneheaded decisions to save a few cents here and there. Um, have resulted in the public health crisis that we face right now. So, you know, another thing that people need to start to understand, and I'm sure you do this in your conversation with uh, food service providers itself, is that, yes, it's about the bottom line, but you can you, you can really balance that, that cost and uh, profit uh, kind of outcome um, I- for them and also do the right thing, uh, which will have positive outcomes for people in the long run. And I think that's the, the shift we need to start making uh, with our food system where the people who provide the good food recognize that not only do they pro- are they going to make money, um, they're going to save money, and most likely they're going to be sustainable in the long run and help people and provide healthy, nutritious food. And hopefully they'll be able to sleep yes. better at night knowing that kids aren't eating junk. Yes, and if
0: if we zoom out all the way to sort of the highest levels of government, if there was any forethought, looking into the future, thinking about healthcare costs for the children, the one in five children who already have high cholesterol and fatty streaks in the arteries, it is predicted that in the next 20 years, uh, global cost for diet related disease will be 47 trillion T R I trillion dollars. Mm. And so, You know, the government subsidizes uh, or has to burden a lot of that, those healthcare costs, especially when we're talking about uh, the ways that people living in communities deprived of opportunity and uh, economic upward mobility are uh, exploited and preyed upon. They are the ones who have, you know, four fast food restaurants to one grocery store. And uh, often the government like Medicare, Medicaid, those sort of services that we provide have to shoulder the burden of these healthcare care costs. And if there was really some critical thinking, you would think there'd be some incentive to reduce the, the that burden. Um, and maybe instead of paying farmers for their meat, they would invest in people who, you know, don't want to die at 45 from a heart attack.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, if you, if you think of some of these decisions we've made, um, at at a policy level and you're right i love the fact that you zoomed out because i i I like to do that it's important i think it's you have to understand um the entire system and where it came from before you're able to to tackle it today and i think context is very important and maybe you know 70 years ago whenever we started making these these decisions to um to, to kind of pull uh especially animal agriculture out of uh, the free market economy and subsidize it with tax dollars in in order to, to kind of, I don't know, for the, for economic prosperity or whatever the reasons were at that point in time. I, I think people who made those decisions, um, I, and I've said this before, I don't think they're bad people. They just made decisions based on the data that they had at that time. And, and they thought those were going to be yeah. good decisions and uh, they couldn't see the unintended consequences. And what you just articulated very well, uh, is the healthcare costs, but we've also, and I, and I know this isn't necessarily the, the issue you lead with, but you know, since it's, it's the issue I talk a lot more about is we are also going to, I think healthcare is very tied, and our food system is also obviously very tied into the environment. And in the long run, if we continue okay. doing this and, and not very long run, in fact, just the next 15, 20, 30 years, we're going to have yeah. uh, a, a health crisis because we would just not be able to grow enough food to feed everyone. And uh, right. and of course, not even getting into the uh, the risks with um, antibiotic-resistant bacteria and the, the, the problems that it's going to bring about uh, in terms of a global epidemic of sorts. So I think these issues are all tied in together. I know people typically, when they talk about nutrition and health in the short term it's very easy to get very reductionist and only think about well what are you talking about are you talking about protein carbs and fats and loose side of the bigger issue is that we've got to figure out how to produce food that feeds people and nourishes them does not lead us to uh, illnesses by the time we hit 40 or 45 that then puts a burden on our healthcare system which then obviously costs tons and tons and trillions of dollars Uh, And not to mention the long-term environmental costs that in the short, you know, it may, when you say environmental costs, people think that means, oh, we're losing our rivers and our oceans and our rainforests. And yes, that's bad enough. And people should be concerned about that. But um, all of that then has an economic cost as well. So I I don't know. I I love the fact that you're, we have to see the system to understand and maybe even articulate to people that, um, that there's that all roads lead back to one simple change, and that is we need more yeah. whole food, whole plant foods on our plates, wherever food is yeah. served. And if we try to do that, we're going to be a healthier nation and we're going to be a more uh, sustainable nation in the long run. So I don't know. I just think people need to wake up to the facts because these are facts. This isn't an emotional issue. This is just reality.
0: Right. Yeah, I I think people struggle to fully understand the depth of the issue because it's a slow death. It's a slow problem. It's a future problem, right? And people are notoriously terrible predictors Mm -hmm. of future behavior and sort of future circumstance. And so it's hard to look at children or, you know, look at ourselves. I think I'm a relatively healthy 30-something-year-old woman, but I don't know what my health will be like at 75. You know, and so it's hard to predict those sort of things, and it's all well. It feels so much slower than it actually is. Um, It it accumulates pretty quickly. So,
1: yeah, I mean that's why it's important to look back, right? And that's why I do a lot more of that lately. Which is, okay, we made these choices. It led us down this path. It's resulted in these problems. If you continue doing this, that's just going to magnify. You know, hundredfold. So, do you want to do that? Or do you want to try something else which is proven in science to actually improve our health and hopefully improve our ecosystem? So it all kind of becomes easy, but uh, there's a still big but in all of this. And I think that we, we still have to talk about, which is uh, one of the reasons we ended up in the place that we have with our food system um, is because people wanted it, right? At the end of the day, I know we started off with, how your journey to starting Balanced had a lot to do with the fact that you felt that you could be more impactful by addressing institutional change versus convincing people to change their diets. But part of the reason we're in this mess, because everything is connected at the end of the day, is that people like uh, easy, cheap, fast food that tastes amazing, that's loaded with uh, salt and sugar and, uh, and oil. And so, I mean, to what extent do you still face that as an issue where uh, and one is the the taste issue right one is the taste and the familiarity with uh, corn dogs or pizza and chicken nuggets and you know kids just want that because it tastes great uh the other is and you then you layer on top the second problem which is all the nutrition misinformation um obviously fed to us by the food industry that says that kids need their protein and protein is found in a chicken nugget or a corn dog and not found in a bean burrito. So how do you tackle both these issues at the parental level uh, and and kids to a certain extent where, you know, people make choices because they like how food tastes and secondly, they have been told that if they eat that, that, well, good tasting food is also going to provide them the nutrition they need. Yeah, um, I mean, that's,
0: the the major (laughs) challenge but so the way that i think about this um and i'm really deep into to unweaving this web even more currently because i think uh figuring out this problem is part of the key to the solution and that problem is that uh people didn't always eat like this people didn't always believe this was the food in fact people didn't even have this food And so similar to you looking back, I have been studying the history of the food industry and how they have used big tobacco playbook, big tobacco plays. And they also looked back to see what does it take to get people hooked Um, and how over time that manipulation bolstered by these misinformation campaigns has led to the food system that we have now. Um, And so part of my work, I feel a deep responsibility into sharing with other people like, A, we've been hustled and we've been hustled real hard and they're they're dependent on us not changing. Like they are dependent on our loyalty, on our dollars, um, they being like big food corporations and, Mm -hmm. you know, producers of all of this unhealthy food. Um, And, you know, if you want to talk about free will and you want to talk about food choice, which is what people always want to talk about when you say, hey, let's take off this hamburger and put on something that's, a plant they're like well you're taking away my choice uh it's at that moment i feel really compelled to lay out the ways in which free choice in that moment was already taken away because this food system has been manufactured and designed over time um and there's this there's this really interesting book called the dorito effect <laughs> in fact um and it talks about the ways in which this emphasis on all of these processed foods and the you know, the manipulation of the ingredients has resulted in basically people not being able to taste how good real food is, um, and how real food is even, you know, just like the way that it's frozen and sent across the world and it's kept for so long, it actually diminishes its its flavor, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, I think about it, not so much as this is what people want and this is what they, you know, this is the only thing they'll eat. I think like, mm, this has been designed to get you hooked and nobody cares about your health. And so if you care about your health, then, you know, zoom that out and care about other people's health. We have to fight this issue. Um, and then the misinformation campaigns, oof, that was really, really hard. Um, it's really hard because it's never actually around junky food. It's not like, well, it is sometimes, but it's not often around chicken nuggets, mm-hmm. right? If I could just get chicken nuggets off of school menus once a week, oh, my God, my that would be my life's work complete <laughs> right? because it's the number one food served to kids, number one meal eaten by kids by a large margin, um, huge margins of just chicken nuggets. We could just get a little bit of those off. Anyway – Back to my point, uh, it's, it's really around chicken nuggets. It's like grilled chicken is healthy for you. Um, you know, this specific fish is healthy for you. This one specific food is healthy for you. Isolate this one thing. Um, that is playing off, again, this idea that if you can convince people health is convenient and simple and it's this miracle thing that your company or your product provides, Boom, nailed it, done. That is, that is the only goal of those misinformation campaigns. And so it's really helping people understand. It's much more complicated than that, but, you're, but eating can still be very simple.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, so I guess from a nutrition standpoint, when it comes to food uh, and what you advocate for, are you trying to get um, people on the um, to understand that just more whole plant foods in a diet is is only going to be good um or are you trying to replace the the chicken nugget which is you know made from factory farm chicken uh with a mm-hmm. uh, plant-based chicken nugget so i guess my question to you is really how do you do this in um in a honest and intellectually honest way really where you sure. know i think that we know i think we all know this by now is that when we say plant foods are better for you We know it's mostly whole plant foods we're talking about. And if you really want to bring about change and get everyone on board to this uh, idea that we need to shift our diets, all we need to tell people to do is add more whole plant foods, even if they still continue to choose to eat meat, dairy, and eggs, um, reduce that down to at least 10 to 20% of your diet, and we all will see tremendous benefits, um, and especially kids should be eating that way as well. So, are, is your emphasis mostly on whole plant foods or are you trying to just look at one to one replacements?
0: Yeah, so uh, whole foods would be the holy grail of replacements on menus. Um, we are uh, slightly agnostic if a school district is like, okay, we will take chicken nuggets, but only if we can replace it with like a garden, for example, or a cost at cost garden so while we think like that's not necessarily our end goal that still gets uh cholesterol off the menu which Mm -hmm. is huge like it's huge to get that out of people's body that it gets fiber on the plate which is really really important um but then we continue to push for you know increased fruits vegetables plant proteins whole grains And really reduce protein down to 15% of your meal. The average child eats four times uh, as much protein as they need. That's too much protein. And 97% of Americans are fiber deficient. Only one in 10 children eat the recommended number of fruits and vegetables. Like who is arguing that we need to eat fewer fruits and vegetables? No one. We're just being bombarded with eat more of this protein, these unhealthy things. Um, And so – even if all people did was reduce their portion sizes, they're going to fill their plates with something else. Uh, it's got to be something with fiber and nutrients. Let's do that.
1: Yeah, no, I mean it's it's funny listening to you talk about protein. Um, I have definitely said this before uh, on on a on a podcast previously, um, but uh, a friend of mine who shall go unnamed, but hopefully he's listening, um, <laughs> has, has told me multiple times that he totally understands why we need to shift our diets and be more plant forward if not entirely plant-based he understands the the climate science the nutrition science but and and this is where he draws the line when it comes to his kids they need protein (laughs) and so I you know I've I gave up trying I mean not like I was really trying to convince him to change um but you just realize, and and this is someone who's super educated, and now I'm, now I'm kind of bashing him, which is fine. <laughs> but he's very educated. Uh, uh you know they're well to do; they can afford literally any food on earth. Uh, travel across yep. the world, do all of that. Yet they've also fallen vic- victim to this 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 complete bullshit that has been fed to them sure. through advertising, through the food industry, and it just tells you that it's it's so. Culturally programmed in us since the moment we are, you know, able to receive information through mass media that we need more protein and that kids need more protein, and that if we don't get enough protein um, through meat, dairy, and eggs, that we're all going to face health consequences when, you know, the opposite is true.
0: Yeah, like all those emaciated gorillas in the world who only eat plants, you know, just like them. Um, yeah, but I, to be fair, I get that impulse. Mm -hmm. Uh, people have like, think about building a meal around protein. So it's never like, what vegetable am I going to start with Mm -hmm. and then build around that meat as a garnish or as a small section? I even, you know, my family's plant-based, but even I sometimes I'm like, Hmm, what is the entree of this meal? And then Mm -hmm. I look at it and I'm like, well, this is a quinoa with asparagus kale and mushrooms like that's all we got it like that's what we need eat that um but yeah that impulse is so real because it feels almost like incomplete unless you can point to the very specific hardy, filling growth promoting item on the plate when really you know that's what plants are for
1: Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, actually, I'm glad you brought that up, because to be fair, part of it, you know, part of it is, of course, we've been, you know, sold a lot of nonsense on on nutrition, but a lot of it has to do with um, our uh, sort of how we've evolved as humans. And I think in Mm -hmm. a recent conversation, actually, I had with with John Mackey on this this podcast, he talked about... um, how we've just evolved to crave nutrient-dense food because throughout our history... Food was scarce, and when we say history, yeah. we're not talking about the last hundred years. We're talking about hunter-gatherer times. We didn't eat three square meals, and and had uh, oatmeal and, uh, uh, you know, twenty different uh, milks to choose from and cereals to choose from. So we ate whatever food we got. And often we actually gathered more than we hunted because uh, hunting was not easy. And then we started to evolve. We human beings just evolved to crave nutrient dense foods, and those generally tend to be. You know the the fact is meat uh, and eggs are nutrient dense. Um, they come packed with a lot of other stuff you probably don't need, but they do give you that filling feeling. And uh, and I think we just sometimes and I and I feel it even now. I I you're completely right. When I'm thinking about a meal, I want to know what's the main thing in that meal. What what's gonna give me that I don't know that feeling of fullness that uh, perhaps yeah. looking at quinoa and and asparagus won't. At least in my mind, I think it's not gonna fill me up.
0: Right. Yeah. It's, it's tricky. It certainly is. Um, And you know, that the, the nutrients that we think of when we think about like meat and eggs, that's associated with a flavor profile and a very certain sense of like satiation um, and food companies, again, I'll go back to this. I know I sound like a conspiracy theorist sometimes, but they have manufactured so many foods to, fit right in that profile. It's called the bliss point Mm -hmm. to create foods that hit that psychological and physiological bliss point to make you your like inner self think, Oh yeah, this is what's going to fill me up. This is what I'm craving. This is what I want. And you know, people don't make food decisions in their, uh, like it's not an executive function. It's like deep lizard brain. And so when I talk to people a lot about making food choice, it really is about redesigning that food environment because when you're hungry, you are stressed, you are physiologically stressed. And when you are stressed, you're not making logical decisions. You're making decisions based on like what will make you feel good. Uh, And what makes you feel good is something fatty and salty. Right. And so until the food environment allows people to make decisions without having to like shut off that like uh, instinct and try and refocus in that Prefrontal cortex, then people are going to be making poor food decisions, and um, that's really not their fault.
1: Yeah, it's you're right. I mean, it is our decisions, and you know where cravings come from. A lot of it is we we can't really pinpoint it it is it is developed through years of uh, our brain kind of just getting used to certain tastes and cravings and 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 emotions and memories and a whole bunch of things over our lifetimes and then finally when you're hungry and you're stressed and you're too busy worried about your job and your and you're running out of time uh, in any given day because you've got so much to do you're just going to reach for whatever is out there um, and available. And obviously, it's usually sometimes a bag of chips or a chicken nugget if that's around. So I, I totally get that. Okay. And that's why this is so complicated. And, and that's why I guess we need organizations like Balance that are able to do very focused work to bring about change, but also at the end of the day in a very um, um, sensible manner. I mean, at the end of the day, everything you're saying, just it just sounds like it's grounded in in real science and facts and not um, some crazy agenda to get uh, school kids to go vegan at the end of the day. Because I think that choice needs to be for parents. But who can disagree with, let's all eat more fruits and vegetables? I mean, that just should be simple and easy. We all should want to do that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I think about when I tell people that my family's plant-based, they say like, well, how do you make sure that you have a really healthy, balanced diet? balanced again. (laughs) And I often think about the fact that, you know, if I were to go look in their cupboard and their refrigerator, it actually wouldn't be any more balanced. (laughs) It would just have maybe like a couple more B vitamins because of their meat. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we just have to like shift the conversation about what true balance is. It's not taking everything away. It's not overindulgence. It really is about making sure that people are fed the healthiest foods, uh, the greatest proportion of time and uh and you know that's sort of our responsibility we think of it not as any sort of indoctrination but really about providing true choice
1: yeah i think that's that's a really good way to approach it so for people listening who want to help uh, get involved um especially parents um but anyone really who finds what what the work that you're doing have just discovered it because they've listened to this now, how can they find out more and and what can they do as an individual? What would you recommend?
0: Absolutely. So they can do so much. Um, If they're interested in leading uh, any advocacy efforts where they they work or live or where their children go to school, they can go to our website and download the guide and with that guide comes a toolkit and then our advocacy team will reach out to schedule one-on-one coaching and help them get everything set up, like literally everything from the first email they need to send to a petition and website should it get to that point. Um, So they can definitely lead any sort of advocacy effort in any institution across the country. Um, If what they want is For us to reach out to their institutions where they live, they can go to our website and go to the uh, score page, and they can use this tool that we designed with the nutritionists and some food service professionals to answer about 25 questions looking at a menu, like their school lunch menu, and it will generate a score. We will then take that score and approach the institution and say, hey, you scored 45 out of 100 points, and we would love to get you to 60. Here, here's an action plan. Can we help you implement that? So we'll do that back-end work for them also. Um, obviously, it's a nonprofit. If folks would like to donate, we uh, we certainly would not say no to that. Any, We are basically only bound by our financial bandwidth at this point um, because there is an unlimited number of institutions and unlimited number of communities that we could work with. Um, and then if there are folks who want to volunteer their time or other expertise, again, as a nonprofit, we certainly do not say no to having more volunteers help us out creating social media images or writing an op-ed. Uh, we love that stuff. It really, really has a big impact for us.
1: That's great. And the website is uh, balance.org, right?
0: Yep, balance. Make sure that D is on the end, balance.org.
1: Yeah, and we'll include the link in uh, in the show notes as well, So as well as on the EFTP.co website. So uh, I'm sure you can go and find out more. But uh, I, please uh, get involved and help. Um, this is a new nonprofit, uh, fairly new, and um, I think um, – if, if it hasn't been made clearer in this conversation, we really need to focus on this problem and bring about change in institutions and educate people about why um, changing our food is crucial in the long run for several, several reasons. So um, I'm going to close out with one last question, Audrey. Firstly, this has been a, f- a really interesting, exciting, fun conversation, and I'm, I'm so glad we finally did it. But um, yeah, I'd love for you, you know, your very early on in your process of, of growing your, your nonprofit and doing the work that you're doing, it's very clear that you have a clear, you have a mission to to bring about change and you're going about it, you know, as you said, data-driven way, which I think is super smart. Uh, when you look ahead, um, say 32 years, I give the year 2050. uh If you, I wouldn't say if, I should always correct myself, I tend to say if, but when you're successful, when you continue to see more success in the work that you're doing and others who are doing work to change our food system are successful, what kind of a food system do you envision in the year 2050? Like, What is your best case scenario for us food system thanks to the work that you're doing? Yeah, so best
0: case scenario is... Uh, at the highest level, uh, there are no longer policies that prohibit balanced menus in institutions or um, any, any sort of um, entity. So for me, that's thinking about um, making sure we are able to get rid of sort of the uh, mandatory dairy in schools, Thinking about the military, which is the number one purchaser of meat in the country, um, thinking about the fact that they have a mandate to have meat at every single meal. Um, They can't have a Meatless Monday, for example, helping uh, the military and other important uh, institutions realize that uh, balanced meals are critical for so many reasons, uh, not limited to, uh, you know security for our country. But um, I I think as we're successful, we'll be able to show demand for this work. We are impacting children at a much younger age. So at 32, I'm thinking about the kindergartners right now in 32 years, they'll be almost 40. They will have their own children who go to institutions that have more balanced menus. Um, They will be purchasing food that is more balanced and in general, the food industry will realize that uh, because of the pressure and because of the work we're doing, it is in their best interest to move away from the foods that cause disease in major institutions. So we see, I see a much greener, I see a much more colorful food system. I see uh, fewer beige items on menus. (laughs) Um, Yeah. When I think about it, it's just really colorful it's really,
1: really healthy. Well, thank you, Audrey. This has been a really insightful conversation, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I encourage all our listeners to support Balanced and the work that Audrey is doing and get involved and and realize that, you know, change doesn't come about by sitting and listening to others doing it. Uh, You can be the change as well. I know that's a little cliched, but at the end of the day, Audrey wouldn't be doing what she's doing or I wouldn't be on this podcast with her if um, we as individuals didn't decide to follow our passion and our mission and turn that into something impactful and real. So I encourage everyone to get involved, do whatever you can and whatever calls, whatever stands out to you as being your true calling. Um, but in the short term, support Audrey and her work um, because I think it is super important. So thank you, Audrey, once again for being on today and I look forward to following the amazing work that you're doing in the years ahead. Oh,
0: it was my pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening.